Well, good morning, and uh, almost Merry Christmas. <clears throat> you know, sometimes when, we, when I think about the Christmas narratives, and when we think about the Christmas narratives, I think one thing that, that tends to get overlooked is that um, as far as the biblical narratives are concerned, there is about a 400-year period of silence uh, from the time that Malachi prophesied uh, until the time we have the, the three great announcements to Zechariah, to Mary and Joseph. There was this, this time of silence, as, at least as far as the biblical record is concerned. Certainly there's historical things that are happening in the nation of Israel. You've got the Maccabean period, you've got the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and all of that. Um, but then when we come to the biblical narratives and the Christmas stories, uh, what we, what we, not only do we have... Uh, the Christmas story, but we have God once again proclaiming His Word to His people and to the world. And um, the, the particular announcement I want to look at today is in Luke chapter 1. So if you can turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. It seems like there's three particular ideas in this passage. Uh, the mother... The man and the message, and I'm going to center my time on the man, although I'm going to touch on a couple of the others, uh, on the mother and the message as well. But I think everything centers um, on the incarnation of Christ. So let's read uh, verses 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from, a, sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she was called barren, and is, she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's talk a little bit about the mother, um, briefly here. Uh, it says that she was blessed among woman, women. And what is it that happened here with, with Mary? Well, it was nothing less than a miracle that was about ready to be performed inside of Mary's womb. Um, and by miracle, it was something that the, the laws of nature were absolutely suspended. That uh, where normally man and woman come together to conceive... This was a conception uh, of unnatural origins. It was a conception uh, by God's own hand, His direct intervention. Now, in our day of skepticism that we live in, <laughs> and we do live in a day of skepticism from a 
naturalistic uh, point of view, uh, a, a Darwinistic point of view. It's in, the one objection that is brought up to this, this virgin birth, this, this conception, uh, without a male, is the Komodo dragon. Have you ever heard this story of the Komodo dragon that was in a zoo? I think it's in Chester Zoo somewhere in, in Britain. And this uh, Komodo dragon was just was a female, and she's just hanging out in the zoo. <laughs> and next thing you know, uh, she actually had a name. I can't remember it. But uh, this, this Komodo dragon laid some eggs. Okay, we're still okay, except for the problem that these eggs hatched, and out come some little Komodo dragons. And so skeptics point to this. It's actually a, the scientific term is called parthenogenesis. So the skeptics will come to a biblical account of, of the story like we just read, and they say, what's so miraculous about that? It happens to Komodo dragons. Well, to that <coughs> type of thinking, and it doesn't just happen in Komodo dragons. That was just one of the examples I came. It does happen in certain, certain reptiles. How do we respond to that? How do we answer that? Just a few things come to mind. Number one, in the biblical account... We have an angel, a part of this narrative as well. We have an angel announcing something that God is about ready to do. Uh, Certainly even that alone is a supernatural occurrence. A lot of these so-called explanations, naturalistic explanations for something that's supernatural, they only take in one very minute piece to to the puzzle in the narrative. You've heard the example probably of the professor who was spouting out his... uh, uh, you know, crossing of the Red Sea, uh, it was nothing but a puddle type of thing. And then, of course, some wise student comes in and says, yeah, but it drowned the Egyptian army. <laughs> you know, and I think uh, that's, that's often the case of, of these naturalistic explanations. And oh, by the way, this has only happened to be uh, the most important person that ever was born in the face of the earth. Quite a coincidence if it's just a natural experience. <clears throat> but this was certainly a something supernatural. Now, when we think about the Mother Mary, um, I think two things can happen, and I think probably in most cases the, the, cult, the world at large errors, well, a segment of the world errors in one case. We can overemphasize and overvalue the essence of Mary, overvalue the essence of Mary. She was not divine, okay? She is not immaculately conceived, as, as some uh, would suggest, she was a woman. But on the other hand, we don't want to underemphasize her role. We don't want to under, underemphasize that this was, in a sense, the mother of God. Um, uh, think about the prophets and the apostles. I mean, these were ordinary people, yes, in the sense of their essence, but God chose to do some incredible, miraculous uh, divine things directly through them. Um, and when you compare uh, Mary with some of, like Moses, uh, you know, Moses was to go and speak to Pharaoh and show these miracles, or Daniel, who would miraculously interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, or um, Gideon, who would lead a miraculous fight against the Midianites. The interesting thing I find about this story and the miracle that God is doing with Mary is it, it she, he didn't tell Mary to go and be or go and do or excuse me she he did tell Mary to go and be with child this miracle was actually in her womb and i find that uh, quite a a little bit of a contrast to to some of the other things that god had done but what what an what a, a moment that must have been for mary 
Now, I've got a slide here. I may have, uh, ready for the first slide here. Now, I may have used this illustration a little bit. If, if I did, I'm sorry. Uh, but this is just too good to pass up, and I've got, I've got videos this time, <laughs> a picture. <clears throat> now, do you know what that is? Oh, you're close. <laughs> you are close. This is the Mother Mary on a piece of grilled cheese. <laughs> Have you heard about this one? This is a news story. I'll read the news story. It's real short. The title of it is called Blessed Sandwich Back on eBay. Ms. Dyser thought eBay would be the best place to show off the sandwich, made on plain white bread and American cheese and cooked with no oil or butter. She said she took a bite after making it 10 years ago and saw a face, face staring back at her from the bread. Dyser 52 put the sandwich in a clear plastic box with cotton balls and kept it on her nightstand. At first she said she was scared by the image, but now that I realize how unique it is, I wanted to share it with the world, Dyser told the Miami Herald. She said the sandwich has never sprouted a spore of mold. <laughs> now, this sandwich literally sold for, I believe if I recall correctly, $25,000 some dollars. <laughs> I have not, and then I think it was given to a casino if I remember correctly. <laughs> now, you know, if you look real hard, <laughs> you can kind of see a face there. Uh, it might be a woman, it might be a man, who knows. My point simply is this. This would be airing on the side of <laughs> a little too much emphasis on the Mother Mary. Um, so thank you for that. So, the mother, now the man. The man, I suppose, is a little bit of a misnomer for what is happening inside the womb of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a man, but Jesus is God as well. The Incarnation. <clears throat> the narrative that Luke uses here uses the phrase, Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High. And, <clears throat> and J.I. Packer, or excuse me, the Bible Knowledge Commentary writes this about that phrase. It says, Mary could not have missed the significance of that terminology. The fact that her baby was to be called the Son of the Most High pointed to his equality with Yahweh. In semantic thought, a son was a carbon copy of his father. And the phrase son of was often used to refer to the one who possessed his father's qualities. You know, there's a song which I, I really like. It's called Mary Did You Know? You probably have heard that song. I love that song. But it asks a question, something like, Mary, did you know that your son would walk on water? Mary, did you know that your son was uh, you know, going to be to die on the cross and, and do other miraculous things? Well, I don't think certainly Mary may not have known in detail, but at some level, Mary, I, I think, really did know that, well, not think, I, she did know that what was inside of her was the Son of the Most High God, the Messiah of Israel. And how this happened, this, this virgin birth, why was Jesus born of a virgin? Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Now, I think the answer, and, and people differ on this, There's the, and in fact, uh, uh, Charles Ryrie, which I actually mentioned in Sunday School, which I normally agree with most of the time, will, it disagrees with this, but I believe it has to do with the idea of the sin nature of human beings. When Adam and Eve fell, uh, of course, we, we, they, they have a sin nature. And this sin nature is perpetuated, Romans chapter 5, from 
generation to generation to generation to us today. And it will be passed on uh, to any, any newborn child that, that comes into this world. This, this sin nature that has infected mankind. Now, the question I ask is, how does that happen? How does this sin nature occur? If it's the case that God just, is it the case that God just creates the sin nature at the time of conception? I find that problematic because now you've got God, the author of sin. That's inconsistent, I think, with the rest of Scripture. But when we think about the conception and the sperm and the egg coming together, we, we, there's, there, it is very clear that we have the attributes, the child has the attributes of the parent physically, right? He looks like his dad. He looks like his mom. But what else do we say? He acts like his dad. He acts like his mom. And I think what, is, what happens when this union of, of, uh, and it happens at conception is not only a physical um, new identity, a, a, a created being, so to speak, but also not, not just the physicality of it, but the spiritual aspect of it as well. And I think that is the way that the, the sin nature continues on. The fancy name for it is called the Traducian theory, Traducian view. Um, and if that is the case, which it, at least at my point in understanding Scripture, <laughs> that is what I ascribe to, then, if, then that would explain why, at least in my mind, the virgin birth is so important. Because Jesus Christ did not have a sin nature. He was, he was perfect from conception to the cross. And uh, anything <clears throat> less than that is to take away from His deity. J.I. Packer writes, Mary, a sinner, gave birth to one who was not in Adam as she was, nor therefore needed a Savior as she did. Rather, Jesus was destined through the maintained, through the maintained sinlessness of His in unflawed human nature to become the perfect sacrifice for human sins. And so the Savior of His mother and of the rest of the church was with her. So what is this incarnation? Um, the incarnation is the idea of that God came and put on human flesh. Philippians chapter 2, um, the middle of that chapter, talks about the, that how God came to this world and cloaked Himself with humanity. So what is that? Well, <clears throat> Let me say this, if by the time we're done here in the next 30 minutes or 20 minutes or so, you totally understand the Incarnation, I've completely blew it. <laughs> I've completely blew it. Because at some level, the Incarnation is not against logic, it's not against reason, it doesn't go against it, but there is a real element of mystery in the Incarnation. I've started to listen to some Sherlock Holmes. I don't know where Sherlock Holmes has been all my life. But Sherlock Holmes, you know, you know, you may probably know him better than I do because I've just started listening to him, some of his books on uh, uh, digital books. But Sherlock, of course, comes into these situations and he gets all these facts, right? And he puts them together and finally comes to the conclusion. Okay, it's, you see the real logic side uh, of Sherlock Holmes. And the incarnation, while not against logic, we're not going to come to a list of, uh, of a definition that is completely satisfying. We're not going to come to a, 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 an explanation that completely satisfies every aspect of the incarnation. 
Because if we think that we have somehow got a grasp on God, then I think our God is too small. Our God is too limited. But let's see if we can put a little bit of um, a few ideas around this incarnation. The, The basic premise is that Jesus Christ had the nature of God and the nature of man. He had the nature of God and that He was all-knowing. He was all-powerful. Um, he, he he's completely righteous. He's just. But then He also had the nature of a man. He had emotion. He, had, he, was, he learned. He grew. He was acted upon. He had the ability to choose. He was physical. He had those natures. We as human beings have but one nature. We have the nature of manhood, mankind. <laughs> but Jesus not only had the, divine, the, the human nature, He also had the divine nature. We've got one more slide. Eric, if you could put that up on the screen a little bit. Now, we're not going to go through all these. This would uh, Number one, I don't have the intellectual prowess to do it. And number two, I'm sure it would probably bore us all together. <laughs> but... One of the things I thought might be helpful is to see across the the board in history how the nature of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, has been messed up and seen as a a heresy. Now, I can't even pronounce a couple of these, uh, but a couple of them that I do want to point out is Docetism and, and Arianism. Let's look at Arianism first. Now, what Arianism did is it denied the divine nature of Jesus. It denied the divine nature of Jesus. It said that, yes, Jesus was a physical being, but He was not God. And that was officially condemned by the Church of the Council of Nicaea. Now, there's a group, well, there's, there's one prominent group that still is, is, is committing the heresy of Arianism. It's called Jehovah Witnesses. They don't deny the human aspect of Jesus. They deny the divine aspect of Jesus. Um, I would suggest to you John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, what Jehovah Witnesses do is put an indefinite article in front of the word God and say, A God. There's no uh, precedence to do that. John chapter 1 is the cure for Arianism. Docetism. Docetism is a form of Gnosticism. There's many aspects of Gnosticism. I won't go into a lot of those, but one of them was this idea that spirit is good. There we go. Sorry about that. <laughs> That'll give the listeners a thrill on the internet, won't it? <laughs> okay, where are we at? Docetism. Docetism comes from Gnosticism. One of, the, one of the ideas of Gnosticism is that spirit is good, matter is bad. So anything spirit is divine, it's from God. Anything physical, that's bad. So, of course, what they do is they deny the human aspect of Jesus Christ, and they come up, there are several theories, but basically that Jesus is either a phantom or that God just simply somehow work through Jesus in a, spe- spe- a, spe- a special way, but they deny His humanity. And I would suggest to you, First John chapter 1 is the cure for docetism. And in fact, docetism uh, be- was beginning to rise in the first century and kind of came full blood in the full board in the second century. 
Uh, but what did John say uh, to, his, uh, to his readers in 1 John chapter 1? We touched him. We felt him. We saw him. He was human. Anything less than saying Jesus was fully God and fully man is heresy. <clears throat> All right, you can move it off to the black, black screen. You know, when I think about the incarnation, I, you know, you try to, anytime you think, I, you, 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 this, you come up with these, no, I don't come up with them. Anytime there are very complex ideas, it's sometimes very helpful to have analogies and illustrations. Um, one illustration that I had come up with, and it, it's, I suppose it's a little bit funny. I don't mean for it necessarily to be funny, but it's the idea of, of what happened when God condescended himself, when he, when he took on the limitations of humanity. I mean, that was, a, that was an event that, um, that really shows the eminence of God himself. You know, sometimes we, t- we talk about the holiness and the transcendence of God, but we also have the very eminence of God, and we see that no better place than in the incarnation. I remember I was, when I was a kid, this, and for some reason I was always intrigued by sea monkeys. Have you ever seen the sea monkeys? There's the, it's this powder of stuff that you get, and then you put them in the water, and then supposedly they, they grow and they, they're sea monkeys. Well, as a kid, I, I you know, I didn't understand the, you know, the idea of marketing, so I was expecting them to look like what was on the can. But there were these, 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 these creatures that really were completely different than me, that really are just so insignificant in some ways and just so different than me. But in some way, in a very slight way, the incarnation, I think, is like that. Okay? Now, don't take that too far. Okay? But... but, but but the, the, the chasm between humanity and, and God, and, I, and that was mentioned, maybe we mentioned it in the Sunday school this morning, the chasm is immense. God is completely holy and other, but yet He chose to break into space and time and to save His people, the incarnation. The idea of the incarnation is absolutely essential for the idea of propitiatory sacrifice. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Helasmos is the Greek word there it's for propitiation. It's the idea of appeasing the wrath of God, and the incarnation, if you will, reaches down into humanity. The empathy, the, he, he, Jesus Christ lived the perfect human life that no human could live to satisfy that aspect of the sacrifice for sins. But then he also, through his divinity, reached up and could satisfy the true righteous judgment that God requires. I think the question that Jesus asked his apostles in Luke chapter 9 is one that we need to continue to not only ask ourselves, but ask our culture and our society that we live in. And the question that Jesus asked was this, Who 
do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? There's a lot of talk about Jesus. There's a lot of talk about God. But who is Jesus? Who is the Jesus you're talking about? The Jesus of Mormonism? The Jesus of Jehovah Witness? The Jesus of Islam? The Jesus of uh, liberal and modern theology? Which Jesus is it? And I would suggest to you anything less than the biblical incarnate Jesus is, is missing the mark. I was, um, a few days ago, we had some Jehovah Witnesses come through our neighborhood. and I missed the first occasion, but I just happened to get to, to work uh, or come home from work and I saw them approaching my neighbor's house and three are in the car, and, or two are in the car and one's at the house. And I thought, well... I'm going to go keep go talk to these guys in the car. So I went and started talking to them, and 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 we talked. We had a pretty good talk. They were some young Jehovah Witnesses, but the thing that always intrigues me is, I said, you know, I'm not a Jehovah Witness. I'm a Christian, and the response, almost just like a Mormon will respond, is, you know what their response is? Well, we're Christian too. We believe in Jesus. Yeah, you do, and your Jesus is a Jesus without divinity. And so, another example of this idea of, of Jesus and how His name is the full orb understanding of the incarnation is often, is often just simply lost is, is, is in these words. And, and I, I'll credit Mitt Romney. These are words from Mitt Romney over the past week. I'll credit Mitt Romney. He went further than I thought he might. and He actually did indicate that there are differences between Christianity and Mormonism. But listen to these words. This is, this is a direct quote from his transcript of his speech. There is one fundamental question about which I'm often asked. What do I believe about Jesus Christ? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. My church's belief about Christ may not be all the same as those other faiths. At least he threw that in. <laughs> Each religion has its own unique doctrines and history. These are not basis for criticism, but rather a test of tolerance. Religious tolerance would be a shallow principle if indeed if it were reserved only for faiths which we agree. I actually agree with that last statement. But my point is this. Does Mitt Romney, he's using the exact same language, he's using the exact same phrases, but what is different is what is his Jesus? Who is his Jesus? And more importantly, who is his God? Because his God had a father, and his father had a father, and you can go back ad infinitum. It's a different Jesus. It's a different God. And I think it's important, just as it was, I think, in in the early church, but even as much so today, we must, when we communicate with people, whether it be our co-workers, or other believers, or even especially unbelievers, who is this Jesus we're talking about? Who is He? The Incarnation. The Incarnation is the conduit for our relationship with God. And then just quickly here, the message. And I'm not going to spend much time on this. Mike last week talked about how uh, if, I, if I get this quite, if I think if I understood you right, it's the the throne of David. Looking through the Old Testament, through the the lenses of the throne of David, 
is, is very beneficial to find out what's happening in the story of the Old Testament. I think I'm saying, saying that correctly, and I absolutely agree with that. Because this idea of the throne of David just occurs again and again and again. And so, this, so we see here that, the, that Mary is being told that this Son of the Most High, uh, that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And we see this idea of kingdom um, that, uh, you know, for a throne, as a king, Jesus Christ has a kingdom. There's some elements, I think, of the kingdom that we've seen throughout the biblical narratives. Uh, when Israel was first called, there was a real, that God was trying to be their king. And then, of course, what did we see? We saw uh, Saul. Uh, the people wanted a king and they chose Saul. So there was a, if you will, kind of a human or a, a, a earthly kingdom uh, from Saul until um, uh, close to the 6th century uh, B.C., or the end of the 6th century B.C. And I think one day we will once again see a kingdom that is run by God, but it will be a kingdom where the people are in total submission. We'll see a millennial reign. We'll see an eternal reign of God. And that is of great hope. Because the kingdom we live in now is, is certainly one of, of, of despair oftentimes and, 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 and um, destruction and chaos. Jesus Christ and the Incarnation broke into space and time, and He's going to do that again in His second coming. We see the humility of Mary and her submission to what was happening up to her. She says, let it be done to me. We're going to, we're going to finish here in a minute with her, what we, what's called Mary's song, her psalm of praise. But I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit more about this, the idea of incarnation and how it can affect people's lives. Um, one of the Christian musicians I like is Phil Kagi. You've ever heard of Phil Kagi? Just a phenomenal guitar player. Just unbelievable. He has one of these, uh, uh, one of his solo album or his acoustic albums, or instrumental albums, is called, uh, I believe it's called Beyond Nature. And one of the songs in there is called Addison's Walk. I had no idea what that was. It just sounds like a nice name. Didn't even think much about it until I did a little research this week, and then I, I, I realized what Phil Kagi had done. <clears throat> and it has to do with C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was a skeptic turned theist in 1929, turned Christian in 1931. C.S. Lewis, um, a biographer, David Downing, uh, wrote a biography about C.S. Lewis called The Most Reluctant Convert. And he writes this, On October 1st, 1931, came the definitive word as Jack, that was his, his C.S. Lewis's, I guess, affectionate name. Jack wrote to Arthur, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity, adding that his long night talk with Dyson, Hugo Dyson, and Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, had a great deal to do with it. Well, what happened to C.S. Lewis here in 1931, was that after a meal, C.S. Lewis, Hugo Dyson, and um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien went out for a walk. And the topic of conversation was mythology. Okay? Mythology. And they were talking about how 
in one hand, C.S. Lewis just, just kind of, although he was intrigued by mythology, just saw mythology as really just a bunch of fairy tales, if you will, and just didn't really, wasn't really grounded in anything. And Dyson and Tolkien said, no, yeah, you know, the, the mythology, there's, there's a lot of a fantasy and whatnot about it, but it's, it's grounded in something real. Um, and they began to talk about some of the mythologies that had to deal with God coming down and dying for the world. Okay, And these are in, in mythologies. And what they said to C.S. Lewis, and what C.S. Lewis finally clicked in his mind there, is that the incarnation is the true mythology. The incarnation is the true mythology, where it isn't just a myth that God came down. But God did come down, and He cloaked Himself in humanity. And he did, His conversion during that walk, Addison's walk, I believe, it didn't happen then. But it happened, I believe, a few days later, when him and his brother were on a motorcycle ride. He's sitting in the sidecar, and they're heading to a zoo. And, and C.S. Lewis writes in his, his, his letters that he doesn't really... It, 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 somewhere between when they left in the sidecar and when they got to the zoo... He believed, and it was the idea of the incarnation is, is what he, he finally put it together for him. And so this, the incarnation is something that calls us to belief. It's what we as Christians, are, are, it is essential for our belief. We cannot have salvation if we are going to deny the incarnation. You can't have salvation with denying the incarnation. It's essential. In a modern day, I'm reminded by somebody who seems just on surface is on a very um, similar journey as C.S. Lewis, and his name's Anthony Flew. Have you, any of you ever heard of Anthony Flew? Anthony Flew is a hard, staunch atheist, and uh, I remember seeing a debate with him and William Lane Craig, and he was just—he was really struggling because <laughs> William Lane Craig was just on the existence of God. William Lane Craig was just crushing him to put it nicely <laughs> and so he's shake, Anthony Flew shaking his hands and he's you know he's trying to come up with some arguments none found well within the past I don't know two three years I guess Anthony Flew this hardened atheist is now a theist is now a theist from people like Gary Habermas who's huge in the understanding of the historicity of Jesus Christ has, has been having personal conversations with Anthony Flew. And he is now a theist. He's not a Christian. But I guess from an application standpoint, I think the incarnation is very important for people like that to understand that, yes, there is a God, but not only is there a God that's far off, but there is a God that is near. And I think the incarnation is the best uh, way that, one of the ways that ties that together. So let's pray for Anthony Flew in our prayers that he might come and follow the journey of C.S. Lewis. The incarnation calls us to belief. And then finally, the kingdom. The everlasting kingdom will be governed by God. And I'd suggest to you that that should bring us hope. That should bring us hope. This kingdom that we're in the midst of now, although there is a sense, and I think if you read the par- some of the parables in Matthew, that the kingdom of Christ is here but not yet. There's a sense that it's here, but it's not fulfilled. And that's the, that's the time in which we're living right now. We live in a kingdom where um, 
cancer's not cured. We're living in a kingdom where AIDS affects the innocent and the guilty. We've got depression, suicide, rage, shootings, shootings in Omaha, shootings in Colorado. It's a mess out there in a lot of ways. But the kingdom is coming. There is a time, at some point in time, God's going to break back into space and time and reign. I want to read in closing from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 54. This is, for, this is Mary's psalm. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He who has done mighty deeds with his arm, he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of, the heart, of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Let's pray. Father, this... Uh, announcement that was given to Mary that um, often comes to our attention this Christmas season. Father, we are challenged with this understanding of the Incarnation. It's, it's a big idea. It's, it's a difficult, it's a mysterious idea. But Father, we are thankful that you provided a way to us to come to you. That you provided a bridge in Jesus Christ to live the life that we couldn't live and to pay the price that we couldn't pay. In the name of our Father, we pray.